Well, now to a lost world hiding in plain sight. Glow-in-the-dark fungi, parasitic orchids, slime moulds that hunt the forest floor for prey. According to ecologist Robert Venel, our forests are overflowing with weird and wonderful species that are often overlooked. These peculiar organisms responsible for providing us with fire, food and medicine have had an outsized impact on human history and lives, and yet they remain largely in obscurity. His latest book, The Forgotten Forest, is where Robert takes the reader on a bushwalk unlike any other, shining a light on the mushrooms, mosses and lichens that thrive in the dark corners of the New Zealand bush, species at the frontier of scientific and medical research. His main message, look a little closer. Robert Venel is curator in the Natural Science Department at Auckland Museum and a best-selling author of The Meaning of Trees and The Secrets of the Sea. Kia ora, Robert. Kia ora, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Gosh, you're an overachiever. Your third book now. Uh, and do they follow? When you finish one, do you know you've got material for the next? Uh, yeah, I sort of just follow whatever my passion and curiosity is at the time. At the moment, it's, it's mushrooms and mosses and moulds and little things like that. So um, who knows what will be next? You famously it your way through the forest and the meaning of trees. Did you do some more of that this time? Yeah, a little bit, although I have to be a little bit cautious with the mushrooms. There are some that you really wouldn't want to tangle with. Fairly high profile at the moment, aren't they, uh, with the Australian case? Uh, And you put this disclaimer because, as you say, foraging can be a wonderful pastime, but you need to know what you're doing. And if in doubt... Check it out. Check it out. Um, I was just reflecting on this, that part of what we're doing with many of us being able to access urban forests anyway, we've got these wide tracks now. It's wonderful that people are walking and off-road biking and all this stuff, but really you want to be in over the tangled roots getting tripped up, don't you, uh, to really get into the depths of some of this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, that's where my heart really soars is getting out into the wild places and um, that's kind of where the, the journey in the book takes you, out into the sort of the wild countryside and into the forest, explore some of these really uh, curious and spectacular creatures. But uh, you also don't have to go that far to find these things. That's one of the the really cool things about these species. It's that once you get your eye on for them, you realise they're absolutely everywhere. Um, they're all around you. You can find them on the pavement. You find them in the urban centres as well. So um, it's something that I really it really changes your perspective once you can start picking these things out because uh, it just they're absolutely everywhere. And they're genius, uh, as nature is. Uh, go when it's wet. Why, what is the particular impact? We know the smell of a forest, and it's almost got a kind of a vibe when it's, when it's been raining, but it's got a practical purpose if you're looking for these things too. Yeah, there's, there's something about after it's rained that these things really tend to come alive. Um, not only at the they sort of swell up, so mosses and liverworts and things have adapted that they can completely shrivel and dry up to a crisp and then once they're wet they'll spring back to life again so they look lush and green and colorful again and then things like lichens uh, they're actually not really operating there so they a lichen is essentially a fungi and a plant living together in the same organism um, and the plant is only really feeding on the sunlight when it's the sun's out uh, but they need to be covered in water they've got a sort of a film of sunscreen over their surface so once they're wet uh, that's when the, the sunscreen filter kind of becomes translucent. It allows the sunlight in and the plants can start feeding and generating food. So that's when they look their most spectacular. Amazing botanical drawings at the front of the book. Are they yours or someone else's? Uh, no, they're not mine. They're actually quite old historical artworks. So I've sort of sourced them from a number of different places. But 
some of the specimens in the book are were collected in some of the sort of really early European explorations of New Zealand and um, the artworks based on some of those early mosses and liverworts that those explorers found. Do we still have them all? Because the extraordinary thing is the age of some of them, including, including what is it that's as old as human beings have been around and is literally still alive? Yes, um, yes. So I'll put you on the talk- spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was talking about some of our lichens are incredibly slow growing. So. Yeah. Um, because of what I was describing, that there's actually only a really small window of time where they do a lot of their growing when they're sort of covered in a little bit of water. So uh, some of them only grow a few millimetres a year. There's a, a map lichen that's been estimated its its growth at about one centimetre per 100 years, um, so making it kind of one of the oldest living creatures on Earth. So it's very possible that some of our lichens have been around longer than people have. Been Tens of thousands of years. And we're not talking about the species. We're talking about an individual, very slow-growing lichen. I mean, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? It really is. And it's, sort of, it's easy to walk past these things and just think they're a sort of a dry crust on the side of a rock. And really, they're, they're things that have witnessed the, sort of, uh, the evolution of people in Aotearoa. So, yes, if they could talk... Um, so we've got the beautiful images at the front, and then the other thing to explain to people is this isn't one particular forest. You've imagined a forest that you take us on this tour through. Uh, does it incorporate different parts of the country? Are we quite regional necessarily, or are most of these um, species that we're going to discuss pretty much universal here? Uh, the sort of yeah, the journey takes you right across the the country. That's why I sort of pitched it as a kind of imaginative journey because you'd be hard-pressed to find all of these environments so it, it takes you from more of a kind of podocup broadleaf forest in the um, the central North Island out to the sort of tussocky grasslands of the South Island and kind of the goblin forest as you start hiking up the mountains and into those kind of uh, really lichen-clad forests up there. How closely do you have to look for some of this? Before we delve into their stories, um, you obviously have a knowledge and can recognise them. All of us might spot an unusual-looking mushroom or some lichen or some, some kind of moss. Spagnum we'll talk about in a moment, amazing properties that it has. But are there literally like hundreds or thousands of species there? And, and how do you learn what to look for? Buy your book, you're going to say, aren't you? Well, yeah, that'd be a good start. But um, <laughs> I, for me, like, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an expert necessarily in identifying all the particular species apart. Um, but you can make a lot of headway just by what I advocate in the book, just slowing down and starting to appreciate the different colours and textures and shapes of these things. And you realise that what at first glance looks like a big green blur over a forest tree trunk is actually hundreds of species all interacting and competing and cooperating. Um, So really, even if you don't have a name for it, you can't put a particular uh, ID to that particular species, you can sort of tell that there's something different and sort of start grouping them into broader groups. One of the things I loved about biology as a science, um, apart from the fact that there wasn't so much maths in it compared to other sciences, wish I'd kept up my maths, damn it. But anyway, is, is symbiosis and parasitism is just absolutely fascinating. Uh, and the ways that parasites in particular come up with sometimes disemboweling from the inside out a host. Um, I know this one that um, Susie Wiles has described this, that eats a brain from the inside out and manages to keep its organism alive until it's had every last morsel. Let's talk about some of the, the more gruesome aspects of, 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 of what's happening in here. Um, can you tell us about the afeto, which is a parasitic parasitic fungi, please? Yeah, for sure. So um, 
those of your listeners that have uh, seen the the show Last of Us will probably be familiar with the cordyceps fungi that kind of takes over the world in that show. But this is a relative of that. It's an Ophiocordyceps. Um, and essentially it, it sends its spores out across the forest floor. And if a caterpillar of a native moth is un, uh, unlucky enough to come across one, uh, the spores start growing into the, the caterpillar and start eating it from the inside out. So the caterpillar goes on unawares. It starts to dig a little burrow for itself, and usually that's where it would kind of pupate and turn into a moth. Um, but actually the fungus has started to take hold. It's growing into its um, host. It's consuming it from the inside out, and ultimately it bursts out of its head. Uh, it shoots up out of the ground, sends this fungal spike, and then scatters spores across the forest floor again for another sort of hapless caterpillar to wander past. I mean, literally, this the spores just burst out at the end. It's like Alien, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> or, kind or of... the Last of Us, as you say, quite literally. Yeah, it's very science fiction. It's, it's something when you start looking into some of these things, they are really fantastical and weird. Um. Interestingly, and, and you mentioned uh, the history of civilization as well, interestingly, this particular curiosity became something of a commodity, right, for, um, for Pagia. What, what was the story there? The, these, um, the sort of the imagination of what the caterpillars were apparently able to do. Yeah, so um, for Pagia coming to New Zealand, they thought they'd discovered this absolute monstrosity of science. They'd never seen anything like it. And uh, there was a belief that it was a caterpillar that could turn itself into a plant, as, as fungi were considered at the time. So uh, they gave it the name Vegetable Caterpillar. Um, and this sort of weird curiosity of nature was became a real curio. It was a sort of collector's item. Um, and particularly, so Māori children in particular, uh, made a real thriving uh, industry out of collecting these curios and selling them to interested tourists. So um, as the train would sort of head up through the Kaimai Ranges, they used to run along the side of the train and, and sell these uh, vegetable caterpillars to make a few few bucks. To suckers, basically. <laughs> there you go. Māori um, had a number of uses for it, including for tamoko, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So, um, incredible that uh, somehow they're able to devise that this fungus is able to produce an ink for tamoko, so um, presumably they were a lot more abundant uh, back in the day, and they were able to find enough of these to uh, burn the fungus, create a sort of soot, and then mix it in with various oils and fats, and that would be used to puncture the skin and, and stain the skin black. Another that many would have come across potentially is the so-called basket fungus. I'll let you use the scientific term. Uh, and they have a particular significance also in Te Ao Māori. Yeah, that's right. So Iliadictin Siberium, or um, Tutai Kehua, is one of the Te Reo Māori names. They've got a, a whole host of Te Reo Māori names that are really uh, fun and interesting. Tutai Kehua sort of roughly translates as, as ghost dung or ghost poo. Um, and they do kind of look like something that's been left behind by spirits in the landscape. Um, and that name poo is partly there because uh, these things stink. You often smell them before you see them. So um, if you've not seen one of these before, it looks kind of like a, a geodesic dome or a sort of hollow soccer ball. Um, and inside, uh, it's kind of smeared with a sticky brown mucus that smells just like um, feces. And so uh, the idea with that sticky slime is to attract flies in to sort of help disperse this animal's spores. Um, but yeah, that kind of strange ethereal look has really lent itself to these spiritual interpretations of what this thing might be in the landscape. So there's a, a tradition that these baskets were the nets of Taramainuku. So this was an atua, sort of like the Davy Jones locker in, in um, 
British kind of imagination that would throw up nets into the, the mortal world and bring down souls to the underworld. And so people sort of uh, imagined these as kind of the nets of Taramainuku dragging souls down to the underworld. A colleague is saying that he thought it was plastic rubbish when he first saw it, um, uh, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, I got quite excited once when I thought I'd found one and it was just a bit of toilet paper. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Um, and, and genius, as you say, for reproduction. Isn't it crazy the way that species will come up to, to spread their spread their love, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of these species will use the wind, but um, your other option there is to sort of recruit an animal to do it for you. So we've also got um, things like uh, pouch fungi. So we're not entirely sure, but one of the hypotheses is that these pouch fungi, which are usually adapted for animals to disperse them, um, they may have been adapted to be dispersed by moa, the extinct moa. Um, partly they look, when you see them, you might mistake them for sort of fallen fruit on the forest floor. And so the thinking is that maybe moa, as they were foraging on the forest floor, would eat these up and then poop them out into a different location. Um, but now that we've lost the more, that, that sort of connection and that ecological service they provide is, is gone as well. Despite the stench, this was a delicacy for some? Yeah, that's right. So it was a um, particular delicacy for um, fed up to the elderly and all the sick. It was sort of a nice, um, nice easy on the stomach meal that you could you chew on. Um, I've tried it before, actually. It's, uh, it's not too bad. It's kind of like a, a gooey sort of potato. Um, yeah, fried up with butter, it was pretty good. But you do want to get it before it kind of develops that stinky, slimy mucus. We'll talk about the medicinal properties again, long understood by uh, Māori for um, for a long time. There's some great uh, yarns in the book about that. We'll come to that. We'll come back to the medicinal properties in a moment. Uh, again, the vision. You, you, you quote the naturalist Ernst Diefenbach walking in the Taranaki forest after it had rained and said the whole forest sparkles with the phosphorescence of the decayed matter. You seem to have entered the illuminated domain of fairyland. So are there literally, we're familiar with um, glowworms, of course, and spotting them, and if we're lucky, in beautiful places in the forest, but do we have glow-in-the-dark fungi? Yeah, we do. Um, so a lot of the the glowing parts are often the mycelium, the kind of growing threads of the fungus, but some of the actual mushroom caps as well have a faint glow. Um but it, from what I could tell reading some of these reports, it, it, it sort of seems like maybe some of these um, spectacular glow-in-the-dark displays were a lot more prominent back in the day, possibly with sort of after you'd cleared a forest, there's a lot of decaying wood around, so that it might have been the perfect environment for some of this wood decay fungi to grow. As an aside, as we said, you've got to be cautious with your mushrooms and know what you're taking, uh, and there's another reason for that, that the mas- magic mushrooms, the psychedelics, um, it was very interesting how they were kind of discovered here, right? <laughs> There's a great backstory to that, or certainly how it became more widely known. Yeah, for sure. So it, it seems to be the at least the the first time that it became more popularly um, known about in New Zealand was a, a group of visiting Australian surfers, and they discovered them in the, the sand dunes around New Plymouth. Um, and once sort of word got out of that, they started news articles would pop up about um, all these wayward teenagers that were eating these mushrooms and breaking out to fits of laughter. and um, They kind of had the opposite of the intended effect because it sort of publicised these things and brought them to greater attention. And they often said where they could be found. So it was kind of a, a, a guidebook a for people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good on the surfies, the Aussie surfies. And a class A drug, of course it is, but there's this return now to researching its use in psychotherapy and, uh, you know, really quite rapid developments on that front. Yeah, this is in psilocybin. Yeah, there's a real um, sort of psychedelic renaissance happening in the research sector at the moment where 
people are looking at these things for the treatment of kind of depression and alcoholism and some really promising results. And um, over the ditch in Australia, they've just become one of the first countries to, to legalise psilocybin for therapeutic use as well. So um, it's possibly something New Zealand may look at in the future. Staying in Australia, of course, the death cat mushroom, which is at the centre of uh, the deaths of three people in Australia at the moment. We won't enter the speculation over that, but do we have that mushroom here? Yeah, we do. It's um, an introduced species here. You do find it um, occasionally popping up, sort of um, kind of associated with oak trees often and sort of planted areas. And there haven't been any recorded fatalities in New Zealand as, as far as I'm aware, but uh, there was a close call just a couple of years ago. A Waikato doctor um, took some and cooked it up with fish for lunch, and they were very lucky they didn't need to have a liver transplant. What does it do? Remind me. It, um, it, it, it impacts the DNA, does it not? It's a particularly nasty progression of the, the illness because you initially, after taking it, you feel really violently ill and you start throwing up, and um, but then you start to recover. And that's part of its danger is that people sort of think once they start feeling better, they must be on the mend. But it's during that period of recovery that the, the toxin is actually breaking down the liver. And so if you don't get an urgent liver transplant at that point, then um, yeah, it's, prognosis isn't good. Robert Venel, our guest, his latest book, The Forgotten Forest. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. Let's keep up the bit of a wander, if you don't mind. Um, shall we talk about liverworts? They have a special relationship with fungi, but what are they, and also what's so weird about their reproduction? Yeah, I've got a real soft spot for liverworts. They're kind of, uh, I always like the underdogs of the natural world, and they're the real underdogs because they get completely forgotten about um, most of the time, if you're, you're walking in the New Zealand bush, and particularly if you're in the real wetter regions of the forest, all that mossy stuff around you, chances are you might actually be looking at a liverwort. It's a different kind of um, plant altogether from a moss. It's on a different part of the tree of life, but because they sort of live in the same places and look superficially similar, it's easy to group them all together. But they've got their own really weird quirks as well. They have um, fascinating structure of their, their leaves, all sorts of fascinating shapes and colours and smells. Um, but in terms of their reproduction too, so a lot of our lower plants, they have this really weird, hard-to-understand reproductive cycle, but essentially, um, kind of curiously, they do have sperm, so they'll send out sperm that will swim out and fertilise an egg, and then that creates a whole other generation of plants. So it's called the sporophyte, but this is effectively almost a parasite on the parent plant, and it grows up and then sends out the spores. So it's a totally different stage of life in the reproductive cycle that, that animals don't have. Hmm. Although some parents might say their kids are parasites, but only if they're in a bad mood. Um, they're disappearing faster than we can discover them. What's, what's impacting them? Yeah, well, the thing about basically all of the species that I talk about in the book is part of the issue is that they are forgotten about, and so there's not a lot of work done on them. So we, we don't know a lot of them if if they're in danger, if they're at the edge of extinction or, or not, just because we haven't been able to look at them. There's only a few few people that really study in these creatures and are really into them. Well, these services, again, and we shouldn't... I know it's con controversial to talk about nature providing services. It's part of the problem we've got as human beings, but it is a way of shortcutting the fact they provide an incredibly important part of our own ecosystem. Um, and medicine is one of them, right? Um Interesting, just before we leave the liverworts, they are chemically really sophisticated. One in particular produces a cannabinoid similar to THC. And is it showing promise? Does it show promise as an anti-inflammatory or as, as a possible treatment? 
Yes, there's a, a bit of work being done on that at the moment, and um, certainly the, the researchers looking into it think that it could have some of the same medicinal benefits of cannabis without some of the more negative side effects. And so um, there's a real real hope in the research sector there, but um, kind of the discovery of that hasn't been particularly good for that little liverwort. It's sent uh, all sorts of people out into the bush mm, looking for it and to harvest it, so mm. as is often the way. Yeah. Now let's talk about the sphagnum moss because it is amazing as well. This is used in the likes. Um, it's, it's been used as a bandage in, in, in during war. Uh, it's been used in oil spills, is it not? And, and, and in fact, it plunket <laughs> encourage its use with newborns. Yeah, incredible. So that was um, something I was real fascinated to read was that uh, looking back in some, some of the old newspapers, uh, Plunkett would encourage uh, early mothers to go out and harvest sphagnum moss and use it as diapers in a lot of the hospitals too, and they'd, they'd run short on supplies, particularly during the World War. Um, they'd resort to using moss bandages and moss diapers, um, and a lot of them really rated it. They'd say it, it worked far better and was more efficient than cotton. What is it about them that makes them so absorptive? Um, well, I think it's partly to do with that sort of lifestyle that they have in which, um, you know, mosses and liverworts, unlike higher plants, which if they experience a drought, uh, their sort of internal plumbing all gets airlocked and they, they starve to death, whereas mosses and liverworts are actually really good at dealing with drought because they can dry out completely. Uh, but then they've got these big uh, sort of big open cells in which the water can get in and absorb and sort of return them back to that living state again. Important role as a carbon sink uh, as well. Now we've got to talk about the slime moulds. Uh, they really sound like the blob. Um, there's one called dog vomit slime, which probably says what it does on the tin. Uh, but also just the way these keep growing, the size they can get to, Robert. Yes, yeah, they've um, got some of the best names really, slime moulds. Um, and yeah, the dog vomit slime mould does look very much uh, like a, a big pile of goop in the forest floor, but essentially it's it's like a giant amoeba, and it keeps growing and absorbing different food as it gets bigger and bigger, and eventually when it runs out of food, it, it undergoes this radical transformation and turns into a, a structure not dissimilar from a mushroom. So they're the weirdest things, and even though they look like a kind of pile of goop, they're actually... Uh, somewhat intelligent. They're able to navigate their way through the forest. Um, they're able to know where they've been before and avoid sort of routes that didn't have food. So um, it's kind of this open question how this single-celled creature without a brain is able to perform all these somewhat intelligent feats. Never underestimate a single-celled amoeba. Um, that's probably what we'll find in outer space if we find anything. Um, and it just engulfs everything in its path. The bacteria, the fungal spores, everything gets subsumed into the blob. There's a few, there's a few potential, as you say, sci-fi horror stories in here. But there's also uh, the presence of so many of these organisms at the frontier of, of new research. And we talked on, we've talked about one or two. But what else really surprised you as you got deeper into your research? Yeah, I think in terms of the slime molds in particular, there's some really interesting research around. Uh, kind of that intelligence and how they could be used. So they've been implied in a really dizzying array of different ways. Um, so there's a really famous study, a group of Japanese researchers um, in 2010, they took a topographical map of Japan and they placed piles of oats uh, in the major population centres and then they set the slime mould loose on it and it was able to find the most efficient routes to these population centres and basically created a replica of the Japanese railway network. Um, so since then, people have used slime moulds to kind of uh, essentially 
biologically test all of the highways and railways of the world and see which are the most efficient and where we could be building new new highways. They've even been used to sort of see how transport infrastructure might respond to a natural disaster. So the researchers introduce something like a flood, spill water over it and see how the slime mould kind of reacts. It's fascinating, the rongoa Māori, as we said, the knowledge that goes back so far. Um, one of your stories is... Um Uh, George Nepier, the invincible All Black, uh, he had a potentially fatal blood clot injury, but he went for a traditional treatment, a bath in Kōwhai Bark, yeah? Yes, that's correct. Wow. Just finally, um, um, oh gosh, this just looking on, that's one, the dung mosses, they've been here, what, for millions of years before animals arrived. They're just, you know, the age and resilience of these species is just phenomenal, mind-blowing. Yeah, the, the dung mosses are kind of an interesting story because um, we only ever find them on the bones of introduced mammals. So they've um, they've adapted to grow on bones and feces of, of mammals. Um, so we only see them on like dogs and, and cattle and things like that. Um, but they've been here for a long time, so they must have been growing on something. Something else beforehand. Something. Another so, horror story. Robert, it's utterly fascinating. Congratulations um, again. Robert Venal, The Forgotten Forest, his latest book.